And please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Our focus will be verse 4, which is listed there on your outline. What a great Sunday to have the announcement in the bulletin regarding Dean and Carol's 35th wedding anniversary. And Dean was in the earlier service. And I noted to Dean publicly that I was born three months after they were married. Praise God for 35 years. Who has been married longer than 35 years? Raise your hand if you've been married more than 35 years. Two couples. How about 40 years? Either there in between. Oh, 45 by any chance? You must have got married when you were 10. How is that possible? <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. And that is a, I want to thank you couples. Uh, we had a couple, Dick and Norma Shannon, 53 and a half years in the first service. That's a great blessing to Redeemer to have you here with us. We need to see your example, uh, and we appreciate that and give praise to God for that uh, testimony among us. And that has direct relevance uh, on our passage today. So please hear as I read God's word, Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Let's pray. Father, these are powerful words. And Father, we confess to you now that we are broken people. That we suffer marital brokenness, sexual brokenness. Lord, none of us has escaped some aspect of this, Lord. We give this to you. And Lord, today, may this be a new day for some who are here, who have struggled with these things, are in the midst of struggle, who come, back, come from a broken background and are hurting. Lord, may these words not be further condemnation, but rather renewal, that their minds have been made new and that they see things differently now and they long to live honoring marriage, whether they are married or are single. Lord, be with those who, for you, remaining steadfast, following your will, pray, God, that you would give us the ability to honor marriage so that the world might know you are our Lord, that Christ might receive glory because your church manifests redemption in their marriages. Lord, thank you for this portion of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have been able to see Mark and Jody's little foster baby? Turn around and see Mark and Jody's little foster babies. <laughs> nice. Is she not precious and treasured? Now you notice that she cannot be in the nursery. It's not just because Jody likes holding her the whole time, and I know she does. Anyone would. And even you would not be able to hold her for very long, if, if at all. I don't even know if you're allowed. The reason is she's a foster child who was harmed when she was just little, 16 weeks old. And so the state has rightfully put very strict protective rules around her. So the Duns have to be very careful protecting her. Uh, it's not they're trying to keep her away from you. It's that they have to. This is because she deserves and requires delicate treatment and protection because of the difficulty this little one has already had in her life. I don't think anyone here disagrees with that. We want to hug her and kiss her, but she needs to be protected. Do you agree? Do you feel that way about marriage? Do you think marriage needs to be protected? Do you think it ought to be cherished? It ought to be looked upon in a delicate manner, in an important way, in that it counts for something far beyond what we could attach words to. 
I think the text tells us that we are to honor marriage. And it is because of how special, how important, how divinely instituted this relationship is, marriage. Marriage must be revered, valued, and esteemed by the church as a model for the world. Let marriage be held in honor among all, the text says. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The text gives us essential, essential information defining for us marriage. Now let's keep in mind that the text has a direct audience. When they hear the word marriage, what is it that marriage means? The only thing that marriage means to the person who's hearing this and should mean to us today is the background for marriage given to them as Jewish believers from Genesis chapter 2. That's where we get the definition of marriage. Turn there in your Bibles if you have uh, them with you. Genesis 2, verses 18 through 24, lays for us the foundation that the rest of the Bible assumes and builds upon. In other words, uh, nothing ever comes in the text of all the, the other 65 books of the inspired word of God that ever changes this essential fundamental definition of marriage. In fact, it is astounding when you look at the unity of the Bible, whenever it refers to marriage, it always refers to it on the basis of Genesis 2's definition. Even when there's abuses to marriage, there's always this clear indication that the, the lack of blessing that happens in those marriages that are abusive or, or, dis, uh, or sinful, that it's because they're not following the pattern that is laid out for us in Genesis 2. Hear God's word in Genesis 2, 18 through 24. And notice every particular word because it's important. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There are many passages in the Bible that are difficult to interpret and understand. This is not one. It could not be clearer in the text as God has given us clear, clear revelation. The unity of thought throughout the Bible that builds upon this essential basis of the creation order in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is astounding and confirms the importance and the universal understanding of what 
marriage is. Very simply from Genesis 2, marriage is between one man and one woman. And they become one flesh spiritually and by sexual union. This is what marriage is by God's will and design. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let me be exceedingly clear. Any other partnership or relationship between human beings is not marriage. Sexual union is only to occur in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. Also, to be very explicit, there is to be no marriage between people of the same sex. To couch it in very relevant terms, a domestic partnership between two people of the same sex is not marriage, no matter what you call it. You can pick up an ant and call it a tiger, label it whatever you want, it's still an ant. Two people of the same sex can call their partnership or union a partnership, uh, a marriage, but it is not. Two people living together with no formal public marital commitment is not a marriage either, not by God's definition. Such unions are not marriage and in fact are sinful and pure, and they should not be pursued or practiced. The Bible is very clear about this. The lack of cultural clarity should not guide what God's word says. Just because people are foggy does not mean the church has any reason to follow them into the fog. Where has that gotten us? The church has the definition, and we must start here living out that definition so that people can see the truth, recognize the truth, and follow the truth. One man with one woman, ideally for life. No homosexual practice, no polygamy, no cohabitation. These things are not part of the definition of marriage. In fact, it's not as though the Bible rarely speaks. I heard a, a local pastor say the Bible doesn't speak much. Every time the Bible describes what marriage is and leaves out these other things, it's speaking about it. So it's multiple times throughout the scripture that this definition is upheld and clarified. But there are explicit passages, especially with reference to homosexual practice. And you'll note that I do my best not to say homosexuality. It's homosexual practice. It's a, there's a difference. Genesis, we know the case of Sodom and Gomorrah and the particulars there, but what about Leviticus 18.22? You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. And Romans 1 is most explicit when it says in Romans 1, 26 and following, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Continues. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, 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 malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree and do not follow. You have a very clear picture in the scriptures. And I want to say from the beginning, I'm not suggesting at all that homosexual practice is the worst sin in the world. It's not. There are plenty of, and we are all guilty to some degree of, of sin in the area of marital, uh, uh, marital area, sexual area, 
just simply saying that this is not to be considered a legitimate form of marriage. That's the Bible's clear teaching on this. No polygamy either. Uh, in Genesis 2, the account shows clearly God created Adam and Eve, one man for one woman. He didn't create women for Adam. He created one woman to complement her. And that has always, always, always been God's norm. Ephesians 5.29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. We are his me the members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. One wife. That's what God's will is. Jesus referred to marriage as a man and a woman becoming one flesh. The Old Testament, Israeli kings were told not to have multiple wives. Although they disobeyed, and in every case, it led them away from God. There's never an example in scripture of, of a polygamous marriage that did not end in terrible sin and caused great destruction within the household. Every example where it exists, there's jealousy, strife, and really it just serves to show the blackness of men against the backdrop of God's great grace that he would still bring redemption even through such terrible means. What is the definition of marriage today? It's almost sad that I have to lay that out so clearly, but I think you will recognize that it is in a fog today and it's important for the church to speak boldly about what the word of God says. What's the purpose of marriage? I want to give you five basic purposes for marriage. I think you can find more, and there are probably sub-points to these, but just note these five purposes of marriage as laid out for us in the scriptures. First, marriage is for relational fulfillment and intimacy with another. Relational fulfillment and intimacy with another. Proverbs 5, 15 through 19 describes the marital relationship in all its uniqueness. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. This is a beautiful description of the relational fulfillment and intimacy that happens only in the marriage relationship. Now, granted, we can have wonderfully close relationship with men with men and women with women. I, I have uh, Nathan, obviously, is a close friend like David and Jonathan would be, but I think the same way about many of the brothers in the church. With all due respect, though, brothers, my wife, that's different. That's, that's totally different. That's a complementary relationship that is ordained by God that you just know when you see her, when you're with her, she's my helpmate. She's the one that's complimenting. I love my brothers. I love my friends, and they build me up, and it's wonderful when brothers dwell together in unity, but there's something different about my one flesh relationship, and that's by God's design that he would be my that she would be my complement. And I praise God for that supernatural relationship that he allows us to have. And so relations, relational fulfillment and intimacy is the first purpose of marriage. Second purpose is for the bearing of children. Genesis 1 verse 28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God tells as part of the beautiful pre-fall world, multiply and have children and have dominion over the earth. Do you know he has never, ever revoked that? 
In fact, after the fall, even under the shadow of the fall, he still says to Noah, go be fruitful and multiply. Why? For the same purpose, to have dominion over the earth. That is, as, the, as Christian families grow, they're able to exact Christ's word and law on everything, just by the way they live, uh, the salt in their life. And that has effect to win more to Christ, and more of the earth comes under God's sovereign obvious control. He's sovereign, working these things, but then it becomes more manifest in this world as redemption is applied through people who are redeemed, living as they're redeemed, and having children who then go forth and do the same. The bearing of children, what a joy it is. That's the macro picture of children, that they're going to take this world for Jesus, but there's just such blessing in every moment of it. It's trials too, isn't it? There's trials that go with that, but those trials help to shape us. I, what, probably the most important lesson I've learned since I've had children really has more to do with my own sinfulness, I think. Just the way I used to, I, I look back at, boy, those are the days that were convenient, you know, the days that things weren't so difficult to get out of the house. But why, why am I feeling that way? Because there's a selfishness about me, that the Lord shows me that there's a need for service, and I learn it from my children. I learn things from my children that I would never learn in any other sphere. We learn things about ourselves, the great joy, the great sanctifying agent they are for us, the challenges they are for, for us. I'm sure many of you have had experience where you've watched your children do something unbecoming and said, you know, I know exactly where he got that. Wasn't his uncle either. It's from dad. You know, driving in traffic and before I can even say something, hearing a little voice come from the back, oh man, when someone cuts us off, where do you, where do you hear that? So it, it points to me and it, it, it makes me look at myself which, with much keener eyes. So the bearing of children has a, has a, bigger, plan, a bigger part of God's plan, but it also is very personal for each of us. The relational fulfillment and intimacy uh, that we gain from marriage is, is part of it, bearing of children, but also, very simply, for the elimination of loneliness. Look at Genesis 2, 18 through 20. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. So God observes, if you will, uh, that man is alone, and he is not complete. And so God, in this poetic structure, especially of, of Genesis 2, says, makes this statement, and then goes about creating. It says, so out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So there's this dominion aspect that Adam has uh, over the earth, given by God, God notes he's alone, then creates the animals, and they all parade in front of Adam, and Adam has care over them and names them. God gives this ability to name them all, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And then verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, and to the birds and to, uh, of the heavens, and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Is an illustration to the man in his need to recognize his need for a helper, God creates all creation in all its glory, but he says, there's not one here for me. And so then, so that man would not dwell alone, he creates woman. The elimination of loneliness, the great, uh, the great companionship that comes from being with your helpmate, with your husband. There's a fourth purpose for marriage, very simply and understandably for the prevention of immorality. 1 Corinthians 7.2 says it as bluntly as it can be said, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Don't misunderstand this. This is not a sole criteria for marrying, but it is part of it. Uh, it it's the legitimate part of the people that God has made us. We're sexual beings, and that's a blessing from God. 
but it's also because of the side of the fall. Our sinful flesh can take hold of that. It can become an idol in our lives very easily. So God, as part of his grace, provides this as a way to safeguard against that immorality. Martin Luther talked often of what a blessing the marriage relationship was, and he was very blunt about why. How it helped him so much to be focused on the Lord and not be given to other temptations that would happen if he did not have this in his life. So it also has the purpose of preventing immorality. And finally, I would just say fifthly, uh, that relating to all of these, I think we can surmise very clearly that one great purpose of marriage is that it provides societal order and health for the entire, the entire society, for all the world. As uh, families raise children and then dwell together in community and make up when there are lacking parents or, or whatever part of the equation is not there, in community with families as the basic building block, makes up for so much of the weakness and builds the strength. In fact, there have been study after study after study that have tried to show uh, that alternative forms of families work just as well. And they never, ever come back with data to prove it. In fact, it always shows the traditional family model, even when those, those family models are not perfect, still are always, always better than any other setup. I mean, we're assuming that we have, all have some level of dysfunction. That's not the point. It's still the way God's designed it, husband and wife caring for children. So the purposes of marriage are manifold, but these five, I think, in particular, help us uh, gauge our understanding and shape our lives. How, then, is marriage to be honored? That is the admonition of this text. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. First of all, one way that we honor marriage is, in general, a societal recognition of the sanctity of marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all. All. The most basic relationship, human relationship, is husband and wife. That's the first two people created. And when sin entered in, that relationship suffered greatly. The beauty is on this side of the cross, we now have, or in Christ, we now have the ability to see redemption applied to that relationship as a witness to the rest of the world. The world innately knows that that's the natural created order because that's how God designed it. That's creational. That's not just uniquely Christian. That's about being human. And so people know that, but they don't know how to make it work right because we're selfish apart from Christ. We're still selfish as Christians, yet we have the Spirit working and renewing us. But for those who don't have the Spirit, you ever wonder how they stay together? It's usually more like a partnership or a business relationship that's somehow mutually beneficial to them to be married, but it's not really selfless. And so the church then comes and manifests the difference. So as society honors marriage in general, even if they don't know exactly why they uphold it, the church then shows why by bringing a selflessness to it and a Christ-centeredness to it. And as both people ascend towards Christ, they get closer and closer together. And this is a profound witness on the culture. It's effective in your own life for growing you in Christ. But it demands a societal recognition, the sanctity of marriage. And the church has to model this. We cannot expect people devoid of the Spirit of God to be able to do this on their own. But I assure you that as you follow this, God will bring others to see what it is that's different about your relationship. And they will, he, he will often use this as a means to bringing them to Christ. The church's salty effect on the wider culture will build the cultural commitment to the sanctity of marriage, even among unbelievers. We see that even to a point now. If you interview many people who are, are, are behind upholding marriage, uh, many of them won't claim to be Christians necessarily. Why is this? I believe it's because the church's witness, even if it's the shadow of a bygone witness, is still there. 
Uh, the church, though, has to renew its efforts. And by the way, renewing our efforts, brothers and sisters, let me be very blunt, is not just talking the talk. I think a lot of times the reason why marriage is discredited is because Christians do a lot of talking but have pathetic marriages. And they claim Christ transforms, but they do nothing in their life to manifest that. And so someone who's an unbeliever watches and say, what's so great about marriage? I mean, if that's what it is, you just stick together, but you can't stand each other? I think that's truly what a lot of people think. It's just no big thing, marriage today. So the church's renewal in this area will have its effect. I'm not saying it might have an effect. I'm saying it will have an effect on the rest of the world. So societal recognition of the sanctity of marriage is of utmost importance in honoring marriage. But notice also what it says in the text, the second half of the verse, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Very simply, brothers and sisters, practicing sexual purity is part of the way we continue to honor marriage. Now, there are many other pitfalls that can happen in marriage besides just sexual pitfalls. But let's just be clear that this is a major one that starts at the fountainhead, if you will, of the marriage. And then it can really have, its, have a destructive impact if it is not understood and guarded against and avoided. This is why... In just one verse in the whole book of Hebrews on this particular topic, it spends half the verse telling us what to avoid in order to honor marriage. Practicing sexual purity is of the utmost importance. Look at the phrase for a moment, let the marriage bed be undefiled. And by the way, I'd I love to hear the lunchtime discussions after the sermon. This is going to be very interesting. Uh, <clears throat> anyways, let the marriage bed be undefiled is what the text says. The marriage bed, what is this referring to? This is a picture of intimacy. Yes, it has to do with sexual relations, but it also has to do with time, discussion, uh, the exclusiveness of it for husband and wife only. I know for us, it is a time of, of unwinding and just talking openly. No one else is there. This is a private place. And so we could just talk for an hour before going to sleep about what happened in the day. There's no kids. There's no one else. This is our private time. And it, it's not just about sexual relations. It's about what it means. It's a sanctuary of sorts to the marriage relationship. It's, it's different than anything else. And it's true. Early in the morning, we'll hear a knock on the door and a pitter-patter and a jump up in the bed. And that's allowable on a limited basis. But it's, it's very limited because this is our place. And I want them to understand this signifies mom and dad's relationship with each other. It's not a family bed. It's not anything but a picture of the marital relationship we have. And it needs to be guarded because it's between us. And it's special. And that's what is meant when we're talking about the marriage bed being undefiled. It's bringing anything into that intimate relationship that would defile the intimacy you have. And you can think of all the things that could creep in. And it's not just those things of a sexual variety, but that is in particular what is focused upon here in the text. And there's two ways we're to avoid sexual immorality. I would take the view that they're addressing two different audiences using two different Greek words here. Where it says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, it then says, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Well, how are those the same and how are they different? Well, the actual activities are the same. One, I think, the first one refers more to the general term of sexual immorality, pornos, the word we, you can see where that comes from, pornography. That's a sexual uh, relations general term. And it's talking most probably to those who are single. So single people have to uphold marriage, and keep the marriage bed undefiled by their activities and by what they avoid and by what they uphold. And then it goes on to say to avoid adultery, adulterousness. Moikos is, is more particular now talking about sexual relations as it relates to those who are married. So if you look at it, the, the activities may be the same, 
but were to avoid, in a, avoid these activities and uphold marriage wherever you are in life, and everyone has to do it. It's not just married people. Everyone has to honor marriage by their conduct and by the way they act. And for those who are single, there are many temptations, many struggles. Uh, there are many freedoms that you have, things you can get away with that people might not know. But remember, what you're doing is defiling your future marriage bed. You're defiling someone else's marriage bed, and you do not have that right. So don't do it. It's saying avoid that, anything. And I don't have to define for you what sexual relations is. You're going to have enough to talk about with your kids after all I've already said, let alone to define it for you. But the point is, you know what it is. It's a lot more than just one thing. For people who are married, again, while there, are, there is this wonderful outlet the Lord provides, there are still those temptations. And by the way, for single people, I'll just say this again. If you think practices that you have as a single person will cease when you're a married person, you are mistaken. The same things that you discipline yourself with regard uh, to, to, the, to the area of sexual purity as a single person will carry them themselves over into marriage. People think marriage just eliminates all other temptations. It does not. And so for the married person, likewise, they have to be very careful about how they uphold marriage and also how they are careful to not let the marriage bed be undefiled. It could be physical adultery, mental adultery. You name all the ways in which we can defile the marriage bed. We know what we're, we're speaking of here, and we have to guard against it because it uh, ultimately it confronts and affronts God's design. And what does he say? God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Let me be very clear. He is not saying that he's looking to zap us when something happens of pleasure or anything of that nature. But rather, God holds so sacred the marriage relationship that he has to defend it by clearly disciplining when it, doesn't, is, it isn't followed, when it is not protected. So he's vigilant for that which ultimately will picture something, uh, something so sacred, the relationship between Christ and the church, that he goes after it with a vengeance, and for the believer that participates in this, that means a discipline or a chastisement. For the unbeliever, it just heaps on their damnation. It's that serious. I want to also say to you, this is talking about people who are practicing this, not someone who comes from a broken background or have made decisions, and everyone here can think of at least one thing in this area that they regret, probably multiple things. Not speaking to us who are repenting of this and saying, God, I see what your plan for marriage is. I see how I should live. I repent of what's happened before. God washes all that away. And he says, start now. This is talking about those who know it and say, I don't care. I'm going to keep doing it. He will judge that because he will not let the picture of his, the relationship of his son and his church be defiled by the way we conduct ourselves in our own marriages and relationships. There are so many other harmful things, brothers and sisters. Be aware Sexual immorality causes great damage, emotional damage that goes untold. They don't tell you about that on the TV show that has everybody with everybody. Social stigma that goes with it. It's amazing how heroic it can look on one hand and then how discarded you become after. Physical damage that it does. The amount of uh, sexually transmitted diseases today is unprecedented. And do you know for all our medical advancements, we still don't have much to cure it? And you live with it forever. Sexual immorality can cause you to lose honor, wealth, health, you name it. Sexual immorality causes damage and destruction that can last a lifetime. I call it relationship baggage. That is, relationships that you have and conduct in that way continue to pile baggage on. So when you come to a relationship where you find that person that you're supposed to spend the rest of your life with, and you have all this baggage that you've got to reveal, and it's difficult... God redeems it. I've seen him do it over and over, but it's difficult. So if you hear me now and you have not gone down that road, I have to speak to you. I'm sorry to, to 
people that, that feel pain over this, but we've got to warn people before they go down that road what it will mean to them, what it will do to them. That's not the disclaimer you're getting on the television or the movie or MTV or what your friends are telling you. It's the pain and the wreckage it does afterwards. I want to say particularly to the young people, the greatest strengthening for my marriage with Sherry, the greatest strengthening without question is twofold. It's the union we have in Christ from the very beginning that we both recognize that the other person is supposed to be about lifting their partner towards Christ. And although not perfectly, we understood this from an early age, and we thank our parents for this, and we move together in relationship that way. But the second thing is that she saved herself for me, and I saved myself for her. You can't take that back. And when she said she loved me, I believed her because she proved it by what she did. That's the best thing you could do for someone. Young people, whatever mistakes your parents have made, your big brothers or sisters have made, don't you make it. Because it's the one thing you've got to give that no one could take away and no one could say you're lying when you get up there and say, I'm, I love you. Practical warning to the unmarried. Also, I want to give, especially to women, young women, please understand these are the facts if you're even wrestling with these ideas. A study at a Midwestern school, actually very close to here, showed that 80% of the women who had intercourse hoped to marry their partner, 80%. But please understand, ladies, this is the fact. Only 12% of the men had the same expectation. You owe men nothing but your friendship. Nothing but your friendship. They owe it to you to prove their love to you by treating you right. And if they don't, they are not for you. You want to know God's will for you? They are not for you if that's how they treat you. 13,500 Americans get married every day. How many of them would be so much stronger if they could come with a under, to an understanding and come with the to the marriage having not defiled the marriage bed already? Now, brothers and sisters, I realize that what I have said may speak to a narrow group. This is such a, a broken day we live in, and I don't want to leave anyone feeling condemned because for all we all have our baggage. We all have the things we bring. And I hope what you hear is the gospel does, in fact, wash these things clean. And we can start on this day differently now. We can go home and talk to our spouses, and we can confess and forgive what's gone before and move forward in cleanness because of what Christ has accomplished for us. In fact, the greatest encouragement I can give to you is by closing with the ultimate, ultimate, most beautiful metaphor given in all the scripture, the most sacred of metaphors. And it's wonderful that this most sacred of metaphors uses marriage as its analogy. How precious is marriage? Ephesians 5, 22 through 32 tells Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride. No better picture exists than this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is, the church is his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything, should, I'm sorry, submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church, the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Brothers and sisters, may we honor marriage. Let's pray. Father, I sense just great pain whenever we have to confess to you our shortcomings and our sins, especially in this most intimate of areas. You've created us as a body-soul nexus. And there are many of my brothers and sisters here, yet all of us in some way have been affected by the sinfulness of our flesh and the choices we have made. But Lord, we confess to you that we see the analogy. We see what Christ has done. We see how he will present us spotless before you despite whatever it is we've done. Lord, it's because of that that we want to live new lives, living in your forgiveness, by your grace. Lord, protect those here who are not married, that they would keep the marriage bed undefiled even now in their activities. Be with those young people who are starting to be interested in the opposite sex, Lord, that you would protect them, recognizing what will go well for them for the long haul, for their life, will be to follow your word, even amidst all the temptations and all the voices that say, try this, do this, everybody's doing it. Lord, protect them, insulate them so that they might be strong for you and that they might present themselves to each other and to you. Lord, I pray for those who are broken, that you would heal them. Pray that you would show your grace, your all-sufficient grace, sufficient to wash away every sin. I pray, God, that we would walk in a newness of life. For the world doesn't need to see a perfect church. We know this, Lord. The world needs to see a broken church that confesses its sin and follows its Savior. I pray, Lord, that we would get our eyes off the TV, off the statistics that are somehow quoted or construed, and all the things that are said that would affront your word and your will and your standard. Forgive those pastors who refuse to preach the truth on this. And instead of guiding their flocks, they head them over the mountain to die. Pray, God, that you would help us see renewal in this day. Have it start in the simplest way between one man and one woman. Lord, I pray for those people who are looking looking for that one person, are holding out and realizing your standards are, your standard is the standard and they should not compromise that in any way. Lord, show them who it is that you would have for them. Keep them, secure them, Lord. Bring them together for your glory. Be with the marriage here today that is hurting and the discussion that will follow will be should we stay together. Lord, help them to stay together. Lord, be with those who have walked with you and walk with each other for 40, 50 years. Help them to finish strong. We take nothing for granted. Years doesn't necessarily mean joy. I pray that you would bring joy. And I pray that there would be such a strong and loud witness for Christ by the marriages, the redeemed relationships we have, that hordes of people would come to Christ on that basis alone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of respect.